We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing on in the series in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 22 through 33. And uh, I notice that our eyes can play tricks on us. Um, it's happened to me recently. A few weeks ago, I was uh, having a conversation with my son and his wife, and I wanted to uh, introduce something into the conversation about how our eyes can play tricks on us. So I tried to look up on my phone this uh, photograph that had gone viral uh, called The Dress. And uh, you've probably heard of it. Um, <clears throat> for all I know, Cody talked about it two weeks ago or whatever. So anyway, uh, so it's this, this picture. Somebody took of a dress that they were going to, uh, that they were going to wear to a wedding. And uh, she sent the picture to, to somebody. And, you know, the thing about a picture is um, it kind of, you get a, a cropped frame. You don't get the whole scene. You don't get the whole reality. You don't get to really be there. And so this dress, you can't tell if it's in the shade or if it's in the bright sun just because of the setting. And uh, <clears throat> I had seen this thing a few years ago. It had gone viral like in uh, February 2015. And I had seen it a few years ago and uh, read, you know, articles about it. So people, you know, families would be having disputes and, and workplaces would come to a stop as people would be showing each other this picture and say, what color is the dress? And they would argue about it. And they would say, no, no, no. This dress is blue and black. no. It's white and gold. How can you say it's blue and black? And so it's, it turns out that it's this funny phenomenon that your brain decides for you whether the dress is in the shadow or whether it's in the bright sunlight. And you don't make a conscious decision. It just happens subconsciously. And then you see either a white and gold dress or a blue and black dress. And I know this. Uh, firsthand because I went and Googled the thing and tried to find the picture I had seen a few years before to show to my son, and I couldn't find the picture because I had this memory of what the picture looked like, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so finally I started reading about this one picture that kept coming up. That's the one? No, no, the dress was blue and black. This is a white and gold dress. And... And so anyway, we, we, I showed it to them and we had the conversation and I told them how, how the thing had changed color for me. And they were, you know, they're just, you know, blown away by this, couldn't believe it. And then I'm staring at it and it happened right in front of my eyes. My brain decided to change its mind and the dress suddenly changed colors right as I was looking at it. I couldn't stop it. Our eyes play tricks on us. We, we have these expectations and these assumptions that are at work behind the scenes in our hearts and in our minds, and they color the ways that we see things. And because Jesus is so unexpected, disciples have to look twice. Disciples have to do a double take and really look and see who Jesus is. And so, uh, we have this nice little story in verse 22 to 26 about the, the man who was blind being made to see. And, uh, and then we have the, 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 the beginning 
of uh, Jesus telling his disciples what's ahead and, and their inability to see or make sense of what he's saying because it completely defies their expectations, their understanding, their point of view, and their framework. Well, let's read these verses. Um, we're in Mark chapter 8, uh, 22 to 33. <clears throat> and the Word of God says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Father, would you work in our hearts today? Would you give us a fresh, clear sight of the light of the world, the one who has come and made God known? Would you remove the blinders and the blinkers from our eyes and enable us to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, in this account of the healing of the blind man, um, at first glance, we see something that we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, another display of Jesus' power. So, he's healing someone who's blind. But then you take a second look, and there's something unusual about this particular miracle And it's the fact that it takes place in two stages. It's the fact that there seems to be a problem. It's the fact that there seems to be some difficulty or or obstacle or obstruction in the way of the healing. And Jesus' persistence and patience and perseverance becomes visible in this situation. Um, So uh, Jesus takes the man aside. He... Uh, applies spit on his eyes. He lays his hands on him. I don't know if these are unusual things he didn't usually do or if Mark is just giving us the uh, sort of specific details of one of the kinds of healings that Jesus did. But it, it kind of stands out that Jesus is paying so much attention. And then he asks him, do you see anything? 
And uh, the man says, yes, I see people. They look like trees walking around. You know, at that point, if I were doing the healing, I would say, this is amazing. The guy was blind, and now he can see. He can see people walking around. They look like trees. He doesn't see very clearly, but he sees. You know, good enough. Let the optometrist take it, take it from here. Uh, you know, let him just kind of find his way around. But this is amazing. The man can see, but Jesus is not contented. He he is um, interested in the one who is halfway there and almost there, but not quite. And uh, it reminds me of this wonderful passage from the book of Isaiah describing the Messiah and his patience and his persistent, his persistent care and uh, ministry to those who are not quite there. Uh, Isaiah describes the servant in Isaiah chapter 42. And uh, describing the Messiah, describing the Christ, Isaiah says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You know, the, the, the bruised reed is worthless. There are plenty of other good reeds in the field. Why waste your time with that one? But he will not break the bruised reed. The faintly burning wick, he he's not gonna snuff it out and move on. So there's that wonderful picture of the the kindness, the patience of the Messiah. The Messiah is the good shepherd, the one who cares for the flock. He's not like the others who devour the flock. That's how the Messiah, the son of David, is pictured in the Old Testament. And here's, here's a fulfillment of that in Jesus. Kindness and patience and perseverance with those who are not quite there. And so Jesus persists. He says, uh, he lays his hand on him again, and at last the man can see clearly. It's the, uh, another touch that Jesus applies. Jesus applies another touch. The one who doesn't quite see, who isn't quite there, Jesus touches him again. Do you find that you're slow to change? Do you find that the old temptations or the old anger or the old uh, doubts or fears or laziness still cling to you? You know that you ought to be different from how you are, and yet you still find yourself sort of up and down. You find yourself cold. You find yourself inconstant, sometimes on, sometimes off. And you don't find that you're changing as much as you would like to be. You're not quite there yet. There's the good news that Jesus touches again, that there's another touch that Jesus is ready to give, that Jesus doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. Are others slow to change in your family, your loved ones, uh, your church? You know, we, we want our church to be full of people who are a great example to us and who encourage us. Sometimes we are the ones called upon to be a great example to everybody else and to encourage other people. Um, we wish that they would change, that they would grow, 
that God would do something in people's lives. Um, your neighbors, the lost, believers and unbelievers, we wish that we could see change. It's encouraging to know that Jesus touches again. There's yet another touch to come. Um, we're praying for an unreached people group um, in the part of the world that we're living in. Roughly uh, one in 30,000 or so are believers. So few. You know, 30,000 is the population of Hingham and Cohasset combined. Like one believer in that many people. It's so slow. But God brings people to himself and God is working in hearts and Jesus keeps touching again and again. So don't give up. Uh, You see how these people, they brought to Jesus the man who was blind and Jesus persevered with the man until he could see. So don't lose heart bringing to God someone who is blind and asking God to make the person see. God can do it. Well, this story of the man uh, being made to see comes at a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. For eight chapters, we have read of Jesus displaying his incredible power and attracting you know, huge throngs of people and being mobbed by people who wanted to be near him so that he had to go off and, and stay in the desert places and not let anybody know about him. And now in the next section of Mark, we move into something different. No longer is Jesus out there doing all these miracles. We don't read of him going out there among the crowds much. We read of him teaching his disciples and traveling to Jerusalem. And there is one topic that he comes back to three times as he gives his teaching, and it is the topic of the cross. And the disciples have a hard time seeing it. So we're at a transition in the Gospel of Mark. And this story of this blind man seems to uh, set the tone for many things that are going to come. So Jesus has been teaching these men. They've been with him for a year and a half. Um, he's, he's been persisting with them. And uh, yet uh, his, who he is has remained a puzzle. As we've read the Gospel of Mark, we haven't been given the answer, except in the title. The title of Mark's Gospel tells us the answer. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But from then on, what we see is people asking the question, who is this? Who is this? So let's just take a a brief review. This is exam time for the disciples. They've been seeing Jesus for maybe a year and a half. And now he's going to ask them that question, who am I? And uh, so it's final exam, or maybe it's midterm exam for them. And uh, so, he, so let's take a review of the syllabus and see what it is that they've covered up to this point. So in chapter 1, verse 7, we have the testimony of John the Baptist. He says that the one who is coming after me is greater than I. This is not... John the Baptist revived. This is not a man in the spirit of John the Baptist. This is the one John said is greater than I. The thongs of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. At his baptism, the voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son. 
with whom I am well pleased. The demons knew who he was, and Jesus kept them from telling, kept them from confessing. He, he stifled their testimony. This is the one who forgives sins. And so the Pharisees were asking the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, oh, forgiving sins is hard. I'll show you what's easy. And he heals the paralytic and sends him home um, to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive sins. Uh, he's mobbed by, by huge crowds. They say, we've never seen anything like this. The crowds say, he does all things well. He's done everything well. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. That's a, that's a name and a title and a position reserved in the Old Testament for God. God is the bridegroom and Israel is his bride. And Jesus says, people can't fast when I'm here. People can't fast when the bridegroom is present. Who is this? He's the bridegroom. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, so this is um, the one who, uh, when he was asleep in the boat and the, the waves, the storm was going to overthrow the boat, the disciples were crying out, and he stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and the sea grew calm and still. And the disciples asked the question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then there's that wonderful picture of Jesus feeding the multitudes. You know how he does it. He takes the bread and he looks up to heaven and he probably prayed the traditional Jewish prayer of thanks. We bless you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. God alone can bring forth bread to eat from the earth that we walk on. And then Jesus begins to bring forth bread from his bare hands. Who but God could do such a thing? Who is this who feeds the multitudes and gives, gives them all bread to eat? 5,000 fed with five loaves. And then there's the, the, the scene where Jesus sees the disciples out in the sea with the boat and he comes walking out to them walking on the water, walking before them, displaying who he is before their eyes, and then saying, don't be afraid, it is I. It is I. And you could translate that, I am. So who is this? Jesus asks the question of his disciples, what do people say? And they give the conventional answers. You're someone great. They say you're someone miraculous. They say you're someone important. They say maybe you're like John the Baptist. Maybe you're uh, one of the prophets. Maybe you're Elijah who has come. And then Jesus asks the important question, what about you? What do you say? And Peter steps to the head of the class. He gives the answer for all of the disciples. You are the Christ. So it seems that they're reasoning the way that the crowd reasons in John chapter 7, verse 31. Uh, at that place, they said about Jesus, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
What more are we waiting for? This man is above and beyond any test or measure that we could have set for him. So he's got to be the one, the anointed king, the Messiah. Um, Look at uh, Psalm chapter 2. Could you turn there with me? Just keep your finger on Mark 8. And look at Psalm 2. This is maybe the, the classic uh, of, of the many, many passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah who is to come, the King who is to come, the Anointed One of God. This is maybe one of the most classic. It's quoted very often in the New Testament uh, as uh, demonstrating who Jesus is. But, you know, look at the picture of how great the Messiah is, how great the King is, uh, the King that God appoints to rule the world, to rule the nations. Psalm 2 was originally like uh, an enthronement psalm, but it seems to be more than that. It seems to be a reflection and a meditation on God's promise, God's covenant that he made with David when he promised that David's son be God's son and would rule the nations. And he spoke things about David's son that were too big for a mere human. And then David had his son Solomon. And Solomon was really, really great. He was like the greatest king ever. But he was a disappointment. And all through the history of Israel, it's that story of great hope, great promise, and always a disappointment. So Psalm 2, here's the vision. It's still kept. They're still hoping that a real Messiah will come, the son of David. Let's read it. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using a different version from all of you, but you'll just be patient with me. Um, this is the English Standard Version. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Universal rule. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There he is, the great king, the Messiah, ruling over the whole earth. And when these guys saw Jesus, and when they spent time with him, and when they heard what he said, they were convinced that no one greater is going to come. This is it. This is the Messiah. This is the King, the true Son of David. 
the Messiah has come. God is acting to save. God is fulfilling his promises at long, long last. There will be no more disappointment. There will be no more frustration. From here on, it will be all uphill. The Messiah has come. God has heard his people. He has seen their suffering. And he has sent the king who will rule over all and will bring righteousness and establish justice in all the earth. It's so wonderful. It's such a beautiful picture. Yet Jesus is waiting. He says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. Keep waiting. And so there's Jesus. He's dressed in beggar's clothing, borrowed clothing. He's depending on charity. He's staying out in the desert, not in the palace. He's rejected by the authorities. He's surrounded by conflict whenever he enters the synagogue. He's, um, he's in danger. And uh, he reminds us not of King David on the throne, reigning and ruling with the nations bowing to him, but he reminds us more of King David in the desert, running for his life from King Saul. But you know what? When David is running for his life, you better be one of those who joins with him because he is God's anointed and he will be king, and sure enough, he was made king. This is a great time to come to Jesus, a great time to devote yourself to Jesus. Don't wait until he's already revealed, he's already reigning, then it's too late. Come to him now while he's down, while he's low. And so for the disciples, this is such, such an encouraging thing. The Messiah is here. It's, it, it may be that these are, this is a low time, but it's all going to be uphill from here. Um, never forget that message. Don't forget it. But Jesus tells them, you guys better just keep quiet. You better just not make the announcement yet. Because you've seen somewhat. You've begun to see. You've seen halfway. But you haven't seen me as you need to see me and as you will see me. Uh, The fact is that just as Jesus' persistence with the the poor and the, the halfway disciple is uh, unexpected and just as his person his identity is unexpected so also his plan his mission is unexpected and it's totally not what they would have expected or wanted or what they would have advised him to do Um, jesus plan is not to go from here where it's low and then up up to reign and rule and on to glory No, his plan is from here to go down and down and down, lower all the way to death, the most ignominious and shameful, uh, unspeakable death that could be devised at the time. So Jesus' plan is unexpected. Uh, Let's look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
So there's this, uh, you know, again, this is where the, the confirmation bias comes in. The expectations that people have. The, their background, their training, the context of their own minds and hearts comes to play. And they don't accept what Jesus is saying. Um, you know, one, one commentator illustrates it by uh, comparing this to some uh, some you know psychology experiments that were done a few decades ago, where they they take the subject and they put him in a room and they give him you know the this special um, uh, like viewfinder uh, viewer you know uh, viewmaster you know so each eye is seeing a different image, and um, what they would do is they would. Uh, show one image to one eye and one image to the other eye. So they would just flash the image for a moment, just very quickly, and then ask them, what, what did you see? And so, for example, they would flash to one eye a picture of a matador and to the other eye a picture of a baseball player. And both at once. And then they asked them, what did you see? And what do you know? Americans, Bostonians see a baseball player. Mexicans don't see a baseball player. They see a matador. And so you see what your background tells you to see. You see what your, your, uh, your experience and your inclination and your expectation would uh, guide you to see. That's the thing that most readily comes in for the disciples. The cross is not what they see for the Messiah. And so, verse 32 Peter speaks up again. And again, of course, he's speaking for all the disciples. Um, Jesus had spoken plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter is just being loyal, just declaring loyalty. No, 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 no. We're on your side, Jesus. This will never happen. I, I will not accept the idea they're going to be crucified. It sounds very innocent. It's very friendly. It's, you know, he's on Jesus' side. And Jesus answers, get behind me, Satan. So why does Jesus say that, you know, what, uh, that Peter's words are Satan or that Peter is Satan? It's because Peter is speaking from Satan's viewpoint. He's speaking Satan's thought pattern. He's speaking with the values that Satan promotes. Satan is a skeptic, always has been. You look in the book of Genesis chapter 3, that's the first time you hear Satan speak in the Bible, and what does he say? He says to the woman, hey, God does not have your best interests at heart. You better do something to take care of yourself, because if you don't, God is just going to take advantage of you. You've got this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You should take that. Take that for yourself. It's the language of self-interest. Or you take the book of Job. You see his character come out again in the first couple chapters of Job. Satan goes into the council, you know, God's heavenly council. He somehow sneaks into the council room and presents himself there with the angels. And... Um, <clears throat> And his, his message is basically, Job only worships you to protect his own skin. Nobody would ever worship God out of true love. 
People only worship God out of self-interest, self-protection, fear of what you might do to them or how much worse you might make it for them if they didn't keep worshiping you. No, no, no. Nobody really loves God. That's Satan's message. It's the language of self-interest. It's the same thing in in, uh, Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew uh, describes how uh, Satan tells him, turn the stones into bread. Well, self-interest, feed your gut. Hey, jump, from, jump down from the high place and, and the angel will catch you, right? Prove to yourself, prove to the world that, that you really are the Messiah, that God is really watching out for you. Hey, if you bow down and worship me, you can have all of this, you can have all of this, self-interest, self-interest first. And so Peter comes and says to Jesus, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You don't want to go to the cross. You don't want to go down. You don't want to die. You want to reign. Come on, this is the the way that the Messiah wants to go. And Jesus says, this is the language of Satan. This is the language of self-interest. Get behind me, self-interest. Get behind me, Satan. I will have none of it. The cross is completely unexpected. Because... It is an act not of self-interest, but an act of love. This is God's language. It's not the language of self-interest. It's the language of giving. Not the language of getting, but the language of love. So the cross is completely unexpected. The Holy One is rejected. The one who was worshipped by angels is cursed by men and cursed on earth. So it's uh, ominous for us who are the loyal followers of Jesus. And this is one of the messages that you're going to be seeing as as you continue through the Gospel of Mark in the next couple chapters. The follower of Jesus is going to follow his path. And it's the path downhill many times. It It does reach the skies. It reaches glory higher than you've yet imagined. But it's often a downhill path, the path of the cross. And um, the cross is unexpected because of what it says, the, the amazing, confusing things that it says about us. It says that Jesus loved us so much that he took our blame, our guilt, our sin, our shame and bore it all the way to the cross because he loved us and took us to himself and embraced us, then the blows that were to fall upon us for our sin land upon him. And so we are able to see in the cross how terrible the blows are that our sin would bring upon us. We're able to look at it because it's third person and we're looking Oh, that's Jesus. And look what's happening to him. Look what they're doing to him. How terrible that is. And then we think, he's doing it for me because that's what I justly deserve. Really? Really? And so Jesus tells us, take that cup, take that bread, remind yourself of this time after time after time. We'll never grow tired of seeing that amazing thing. God loves the one who's rejected. 
Jesus embraces the one who's unclean. He bears the sin of the guilty. The cross is unexpected. The way up leads downward. How crazy is that? Service, giving of yourself, is the way to greatness. It's all upside down and backwards. Self-interest is Satan's trap. It's a dead end. I mean, the most obvious thing in the world, everyone, you don't even have to learn it. It's just ingrained in us that you look out for number one, self-protection. You can't escape it. It's, it's wired into every living thing. Nope, that's a trap of the devil. That's the devil's trap. You need to give yourself. Wow. You know, I, I need new eyes to be able to see these things. Well, the healing of the blind man is really a parable. It's a visual parable of the healing of the disciples' blindness. And, uh, and we see this. If you, if you look with me back to verse 18, there in Mark chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus is rebuking the disciples for their blindness. He says, are you, are you like those people that, that don't hear the parables because though they have eyes, they do not see? Though they have ears, they do not hear. So he says, you guys are like this. You're talking all about the bread and, and what bread to eat and where to get bread and everything. Chapter 8, verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? The disciples are blind. And then we get the, the healing of the blind man. So it's a, it's a parable. It's the, um, <clears throat> it's the first healing of a blind man in Mark. So in Matthew and in Luke, healings of blind men and restoring the sight of the blind, that's one of the regular routine miracles that Jesus is always doing early in his ministry, from early in his ministry. But Mark, though he knows about all that, he holds that back and he brings out the healing of the blind now to make a point. And so we get this healing of the blind man here at the beginning of this new section of Mark. And then there's another healing of another blind man at the end of this section of Mark, just as they reach Jerusalem, just before they reach Jerusalem. So at the very end of chapter 10, there will be another healing of a blind man. And so <clears throat> commentators uh, pretty much agree that, that this is a parable, this is a picture. So what does it tell us? It tells us that if it's hard for us to see the light of the cross, if it's hard for us to appreciate the glory and the beauty of the cross, if we look at the cross and we see it all in a worldly sort of way, in all a crooked sort of way, in a confused sort of way, in a self-oriented sort of way, Jesus touches our eyes again. Jesus is patient and persistent with his disciples. Jesus makes disciples who don't see well to see clearly. <clears throat> he patiently persists with us, and he overcomes our selfishness with his love. Father, would you continue this wonderful work in our lives, that we might see the glory of the cross, that we might not see it as something 
embarrassing or shameful, as Christians were tempted to do in those first days, the scandal of the cross, the shame of the cross, the embarrassment of the cross. But Father, would you give us spiritual eyes to see the amazing wonder of the love of God poured out upon the whole world through the cross, of the wonderful glory of the Son of God, the King of kings, the Messiah who reigns over all the nations, who came humbly, giving himself, going down further and further in order to redeem the lowest, the least, and the worst. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your giving, for your gift. We thank you for your love. And may our hearts reflect it. May the light of the cross shine out from us. And oh, would you give others eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.